and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Best Girl Grip. This was recorded live at the Underwire Film Festival last month at Rich Mix in Shoreditch, and I was absolutely delighted to interview Roxy Razvani, a filmmaker, producer and journalist who won the Best Director Award at the festival last year for her short documentary, Little Pyongyang. We talk about the year she's had in terms of both accomplishments and struggles, as well as what it's like to be working in this industry as a young woman and a person of colour. Thank you so much to Anna and the team at Underwire for this event, and to Roxy for her candor and eloquence. I'm really happy to be back, and with a barnstorming episode no less, even if I do say so myself. This is episode 30 of Best Girl Grip. So I actually squealed with delight when Roxy accepted the offer to appear on this podcast stage with me. Um, I'd seen your short film Little Pyongyang a while back and had heard the buzz percolating around both the film and the filmmaker. So Roxy won Best Director for that short film last year at Underwire Film Festival. It won Best Documentary at the Smalls Film Festival and it played in competition at CPH Docs in Copenhagen, played at Sheffield Doc Fest, was on BBC World News and you were named as a creative trailblazer by the Dots in 2018. So I think it's fair to say it was sort of a launching pad for your career. If you could take us back to how the idea came about and where the resource and commission came from to get it made. Well, um, yeah, no, well, I was going to say just quickly again, thank you so much for having me and for, again, giving me the space to talk about it because I guess for me or kind of, like you said, it seems like such a simple question to ask someone. How did it all come about and how did it start? And then that's why I've even got notes on my lap because I had to remind myself about what a process it was to even actually make the film and get it started uh, before it actually became the film that everyone can see. But I guess, yeah, I'll begin at the very beginning. And so the film, uh, which is about uh, a North Korean refugee living in the UK, uh, did really, really, really begin life uh, when I was working at a place called Vice Media. And um, it all actually began out of the fact that I like wrote an article back in 2014 about North Korean uh, refugees that were living in a suburb of London called New Malden. Now, I was, I, I don't live there, but I was spending a lot of time there in New Malden because my uh, boyfriend, who's still my boyfriend now, and we'd been together for many years was living there basically so I was very frequently doing the route spending time there getting to know the community and a big thing that people might see when they go there or might know is that it has quite a big Korean community and as part of that something that maybe people don't realize because we are like I feel like until now had not really had conversations about the like North Korean specific refugee community or diaspora there that there are actually loads of refugees there uh, but still I found that people would often ask me but how how did you find out and I was like well just a lot of the time through through speaking to people and through uh, going to the restaurants, the bars that are there, spending my time there, would just talk to people and eventually did find out for the first time that there were people who had come from North Korea. The best way I can describe it to people is that I, myself, working at, you know, was working at a place like Vice, uh, was a journalist and was really investing my time in, in learning about the world. And then suddenly, I just suddenly felt really foolish at the fact that when I heard that when someone was like oh yeah you know oh that guy he's he's actually not North Korean that I it was the first time that I had even thought that there could be and was a diaspora there and I realized about how in the media we have even kind of still till now 
portray North Korea as this very singular place and this very like in a very I don't know how to put it we tie a ribbon around it and just sort of leave it there and didn't really see it as part of like an international community that obviously has to do with the fact that it is run by a dictator and and uh, it's treated I know all the citizens uh, are denied freedom of speech and all that stuff like that but more so I realized on our end right that we're not denied that we're not denied educating ourselves and so all of these things were rushing through my head when I began to pick up information like that through spending time there but I really do I don't know how to put it like emphasize to people that like part of what I think was like amazing at the beginning of that process was that that's it my my first thoughts were just I want to know more or I can't believe I didn't know more and I didn't jump to like making a film or I didn't so I would put it like straight away quite honestly think well, how can I turn this into something for me I, I really was just came at it from a genuine place of just wanting to meet people and know more and then I credit that with then allowing me to get to the point where I began to you know I I'll talk to people say oh there is you know what are people doing what are their lives like and then eventually came to see um it was like an advert as part of the new Malden creative arts festival because the suburb amazingly did have its own arts festival and as part of the arts festival the local gym was uh hosting a space where uh, a refugee called Jewel Kim was doing a talk about his experiences. Now, I obviously thought that was quite funny as part of a, like an arts festival, but went along. And as I put it from there, the rest became history because that was the first time I went, heard someone speak in their own words. And I just continued to feel the draw of, of wanting to meet more people. And then eventually that's where, when I started talking to them and they were like, oh, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I, I write and I make films. They suddenly were like, okay, we're using that write an article about us and and that's then how this this was all the way back in 2013-14 then I wrote an article uh, which was published on Vice and as I put it again like really didn't straight away it came to me only the fact that I was like oh maybe I should really do something with this when we published the article and that's where then uh, I'd met Jung who's in the film uh, there I interviewed him and Jewel and suddenly we published this article on Vice and I was getting well I was a mix I was getting messages from places like ITV, BBC, Telegraph but also I wasn't getting messages and then I was also just seeing my work quite frankly like plagiarized and copied and posted on uh, other news outlets. And not crediting you? Oh no of course not you know what I mean and so but that was a kind of like good wake-up call in the first instance to show me that ah oh, this was something that people wanted to hear about but also I guess simultaneously as part of, I guess, what we'll be discussing jointly just in terms of making the film, but also come, coming to understand what it means to be a filmmaker, uh, realized how, there you go, there was something that people wanted to communicate with others, and yet they also wanted to do so in a way that was really circumventing I don't know processes not to not they, they were why is it that they wanted to share this story but you know they didn't want to speak to Jung they didn't want to go down there themselves they didn't even want to speak to me and you know it, it was just very interesting and then I would say again as I thought about it more and more and especially was moved and was you know as I put it there was nowhere to hide from it the more and more I was speaking not just to the two to Mr. Kim Mr. Choi about their experiences but also to a lot of other refugees in the area who just did who wanted to speak off the record or or uh, again didn't want to be public facing but still wanted to share their stories so that they were like so you know it then changed how I then as I said was engaging myself with the rest of the media coverage on North Korea there are obviously especially based in South Korea based 
out there covering day to day the issues and what's going on, who people who are doing amazing coverage. But I mean more in terms of the mainstream and the coverage. It was suddenly, suddenly there I was. I was like young. I was, I'd been working at Vice and, you know, it was a great job. But as I put it, I was not working there as a director. And, and very much so, again, when you work as part of a big organization, it's like you work for them. You're, I don't know how to describe it other than like, I, I just couldn't believe that I was there looking at the other coverage and thinking, why is it that I'm little old me and I'm going down to New Malden and I'm able to go and speak to these refugees and I'm not seeing anywhere else in British media people just publishing the direct word of refugees and why am I not seeing anyone go down it's just you know I mean I was it's just it's literally in London it's not that we don't even have the excuse of oh we got to travel or anything like that and also for me as I put it like where I didn't have the resources and I was working on my own I was working at Vice sure but this was not something that was um supported by Vice and I was just you know saving up cash getting the getting the train down I started off asking my boyfriend's friends who were Korean speakers at first I was like oh would you help me out take take the weekend off come translate for me and then eventually when I did save up a bit of money to start then paying people was paying properly uh professional translators and yeah I just had this moment where I think it did manifest a little bit as frustration at the mainstream media that I was like ah I can't believe that all the coverage I'm seeing is more about like Kim Jong-un having a funny haircut or talking about again just like the like political game theory of nuclearization but no one actually talking about the people that were suffering at the hands of of the situation and speaking of mainstream media when did the guardian come on board because they were commissioners exact producers in it so so i guess so yeah so i guess like what i'd say was the guardian so the guardian came on board as the first people to uh put money into the film um, other than myself and I'd say the way that came about was because I had been working on this idea in my own time really uh, as I said really trying to come to it with no agenda doing a lot of speaking with the community and then basically what what then began to happen was that I realized that for myself the person that uh, really had who who again when I started to say look look this I'm a young filmmaker this is going to be the first film I'm doing independently this is going to probably have to be a short um tried to find amongst the community someone whose story I felt as an individual could encapsulate so much about the whole that became Jinghua and uh as I then began to talk to him more and talk to him about the stuff that he wanted to achieve um that's when as I would put it what the film the film became clear and clear in my mind but the one thing that as I put it if I kind of split up you've got in your head as a filmmaker and it's an indie filmmaker where you were balancing directing and producing and writing all in your own head you've got this like train of thought that for me is the the creative and the fantasy and what you want to what you want to make reality in terms of the film but then you've also got the pragmatics of just baseline where am I going to get my money from now I having worked at Vice and coming from a background of working more in television and for so we put it like institutional producers of film had had no ex- experience or exposure to indie filmmaking until I went to Sheffield Film Festival or Sheffield Doc Fest specifically and had uh, been part of a training program run by two amazing producers called Rachel uh, Wexler and Jez Lewis who were trying to invest in training people in indie filmmaking and so when you say how did the Guardian come on board and for me it was like I went to the festival 
engaged in the training. And one of the people who came to talk to us to say, hey, I'm a commissioner and I've got some money to give a film was Charlie Phillips from The Guardian. And so as I put it, like in a nice way, it's all worked out beautifully. But there was no, at that stage for me making my first film, there was no more guile or strategy to it at that point in time other than I've seen a man, he said he's got some money. Maybe I'll, you know, I mean, I'll give him a call. And in a funny way, I think for me, not coming from that, place in indie filmmaking yet where I knew let's say as I would put it the prestige of the Guardian and the prestige of Charlie uh, it did mean that I almost was really okay to just keep sending him loads of emails until he got back to me and so I did just go hey I saw you talk and you said you had some money I've got an idea hey and then and really nicely then he did finally get back get back to me and and actually, I was very lucky, I would say, that at the same time, lucky, but, you know, again, as I would put it, it's just the way things work. North Korea was coming up in the news. Charlie gets in touch to reply, says, come, come pitch to me. And I think I really benefited from not only how he, as a commissioner, likes to work quickly, get things into motion, is very motivated, but simultaneously, um, the fact that I'd say like my first lucky break with this project and getting off the ground was the fact that it was in the news. But pretty much from then, I'd say like those summarizing the like financing process to people is was that ultimately the Guardian again to be to be honest I when I I'm coming from a TV background again not an indie I was not at that point in time coming from a low budget filmmaking background that means when I did a budget for this project I did a budget for this project do you I mean as in I did a budget where I was like well this is how much people's time costs this is how much the industry should pay for this drew it up and it was coming close if I pay I I did like um you know you're always encouraged to do your bounds I was like "Hmm, if we paid everyone what they should be paid it's 100k and if if um if I really really pushed people if we really did some long days it's 50k filmmakers who know the lay of the land in terms of like low budget filmmaking they will laugh and splutter and be like you were never going to get that amount right five to ten k is maybe what you're using for short filmmaking so hundred k is maybe a bit and i'd say like when i went and did the ask round, people were like expect three to four but again in terms of like i was saying i think i benefited having not come from a place where you're told don't see your project as worth 3k okay that's all someone might give you but what are your other options that's why in the end we did have to go to like several different funds to to get it made really we did not get close to that i think when as i said when people ask you how much how much did it cost i, I say our official figure was thirty thousand pounds but to say that out loud again it's like well it didn't cost that it cost so much of people's time and unpaid labor as well but we managed to fundraise that. And still, even when I say £30,000, people are still so surprised that I got that to make a first short. It's also really interesting because the visuals are incredible and all the money is on the screen, it looks like to me. Can we talk about that aesthetic, what you wanted to achieve with it and how you achieved it? With the aesthetic, often I feel, that again, in light of the film, a lot of people have asked me, where, again, where did that come from? And I've kind of struggled perhaps with giving people the simple answer because they say... As part of what I learned making a low-budget film as a director and a producer is that often your aesthetic, you, you have this wildest dreams idea of something. But I tell people that as someone who maybe was really, really had that first shock just with the budget um, disparity, had to really, really come at this from a pragmatic angle. And the pressure that I put on myself with that and was that was I was like, I'm getting this made because actually for me, this wasn't a short 
dramatic film. This was a short documentary. And my motivation to make this was, was like, I was like, I know I have one goal. I have many aims with this, but I have one goal. And that is, but at the end of this, and when the film comes out, I need people to care more about North Korea and what North Koreans are going through. So as part of that, the aesthetic came in the first instance from a lot of feedback from the rejections I had had in pitching. And that's not to say like, I had like a vision for the film and I was um, trying to express to people the things I'd like to do. But one of the first ever rejections I got before I even came up with the aesthetic and was pitching it, I, I just, you know, when I began to mention to people, oh, I've got a bit of access to a North Korean refugee who would like to tell a story. Um, in the first instance, people were just like, oh, is it just going to be an interview? Are you going to go there? Also, it sounds quite bleak. Yes. People were just like, oh, do I want to? And as someone who, as I said, is feeling the burden of, a, of engaging with a real life human being that was going through something and also made aware of the still to this day current human rights crisis i was like no okay solution it, yes in, in some senses even if people have seen the film today it is quote unquote just an interview but i was like okay i'm going to give you an interview that you will not be able to ignore and i'd say like that in simplest essence is where the aesthetic began to come from and then in terms of um all the references and everything in there if people want to hear more about that, I've done a talk for It's Nice That that is available online through Nicer Tuesdays that they can listen to where I answer really specific details about the aesthetic. I'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> Thank you. But I'd say that, um, again, just in terms of, a, in summary, so much of all the decisions I was making creatively came from obviously like my own aesthetics, my own sense of preference, what I like, what I don't like, how I like to express things, my love of art, but also really, really drove, came back to this motivation of how can I make people listen? If people are going to tell me this is just an interview, how am I going to do what I can do? This man can't do any more. So I, I, again, I felt the insult of, I just felt the weight of people saying that. It's like, oh my gosh, I could not believe that this man had literally done all that he had done, traveled to this country, was still again bearing the load and yet people were telling me that that's not interesting enough to listen to so that's why I was like that's where I come in and that's where my value is as a filmmaker I'm gonna do what I can do with the medium of film to make this interesting both of us talked about what we wanted to do with this interview today and part of it was to talk about what's happened after little Pyongyang so it comes released a year ago can we talk a bit about the hype that it's received it's been quite celebrated within the filmmaking community and the emotional and practical impacts of having something that's so well received but then what happens after for you yeah I so maybe again I'd start with your question where I'd say the first thing for me in terms of the release and the reception was that it was the whole thing was new to me it's my first time bringing out a short and that's why I have been so grateful that there has been an audience for it and there has been so much support but so maybe I think to start off and why I'm hesitant is like to to be aware of is what I found so interesting was how I could map a variety of uh, reactions to the film because I, you know, obviously I've been so grateful. Underwire, their reaction was to really nicely support me, <laughs> give me an award, and to this day again give me a platform. They're good people. Yeah, but there are other people whose reaction, very interestingly, uh, to the film was, "Oh, cool! You made a little YouTube film. That's cool." Um, yeah, that's cool. Did you worry about derailing your career by not staying in TV or, you know, d you know, making a proper film? And so that's why I think it, for me, it's like important to share that with people. As an individual, the journey I have been through is trying to unpack why there was such a difference. Because I think there is this 
because on the one hand, again, it's like I have undoubtedly got so many opportunities and I think we should, again, we'll talk about those and how those have been amazing and what that's allowed me to do as a young filmmaker and speaking also in in um, support of encouraging filmmakers to go out there and make a short, make sure they're passionate about to get their career launched. But simultaneously, to have a look at why some people reacted in that way. And, and that's why, again, it was so interesting to me that there were some people who still watched the film and could not recognize the amount of work and care that had gone into it. Um, and as I say that, not because of my own opinion of the film, but I would say that for anyone who's making shorts that are again appearing at a festival like this, and it made me realize the disparity in the media industry and film industry itself as to how people view the different types of film. Having come from a background in television, what I found very interesting was that that the reaction in some from people in the UK mainly was that they saw it perhaps as like, oh, that's good, the good that you did that for you, but that isn't advancing your career, and that was quite interesting. But on the flip side, what I received and what was really amazing was that I had, because what I gained, right, from not only taking the film to film festivals, but from The Guardian and from other online platforms that showed it online, was an international reach, is that I had quite a lot of US production companies get in touch with me and say, great, watch the short, what do you want to make next? How can we help? You know, pitch us, pitch us. And that, for me, in terms of like a discussion of how, and I guess this is what this film, uh, this uh, festival is trying to do, in terms of how we view even filmmakers within our own context and our own industry and look at the opportunities they're giving and, and how we even view the work that they're doing was so important because it was just very interesting to me, as I said, that some people all the way across the pond saw this short and they were like, you've made a pilot for a TV series. And other people were like, you've derailed your TV career. Isn't that a waste of time? That's interesting in that, well, first of all, did you feel any pressure after? Because I think as a young filmmaker, you can sort of build up to your first thing and you're almost existing in a protected space where you're not putting your work out there and you can keep chipping away at it. And then suddenly, as soon as you release it, people are paying attention, which is great, but then you kind of, you're on the treadmill and do you feel like you have to now keep producing work at quite a steady pace? Y yes and no. So I think like in reaction, as I said, to maybe receiving that response from people who more work in traditional television and becoming uh, over the last year a greater part of the indie in the indie low budget filmmaking community I think that what I have definitely seen and um, felt is that there is like again the question that everyone's asking you is what's next what's next I had some people tell me you better do it quick because in a year's time no one's gonna want to support you there are going to be a whole new crop of filmmakers but I would say that my reaction to that was what would the difference be then to when I didn't make Little Pyongyang at least like my reaction wasn't to hop to it wasn't to feel that pressure because in a weird way I was like I shouldn't be seeing a my like colleagues as competitors personally and I was like and b I was like well I've what was so nice about the experience and and maybe as I say that's what you're saying as a director who was also a producer was that I think I felt really empowered by fundraising my own film financing my own film in that way because it meant that I didn't you you just get this little boost where and I would really encourage it to, to other people if people ask me why I feel that way is I probably would put it down to that that I didn't feel that I had to to bow to those pressures because I was kind of like if I did it with no experience or I did it with no overt industry support the first time around combined with an idea I was really passionate about then I'll be able to do it again and also kind of staying for me trying to stay true to myself and the sentiments of that of little Pyongyang I tell people like it's okay if I don't know for me it's like in my career I felt so passionate that film because the passion was real I felt so connected to that story that gave me the drive to push it through and to make it in the way I want to make it because the the passion was genuine 
I'll make a new film when I feel that way about another topic or person or issue that I want to express. What I think, though, again, in terms of like an important conversation, though, to have as a young filmmaker and with the expectation that I feel is laid out in the industry, which is if you want to be a director, you go away, you make a short. If it's successful, you'll get to make another one. You'll be pushed up the rungs of, of the career ladder and, and get closer to, to, to what? That's why I go to, to what making your first feature, getting into the TV industry. I think that's something, again, over the last year that I've like really tried to assess because in honesty... A lot of people got in contact with me after the film to do press, to platform, to get, provide me with a platform to speak, which I was really grateful for. But I'd say, like, no, in honesty, no funders got it. Just again, and, and you know, as I joke, maybe I should feel ashamed to say it, but I, I don't. Is no funders got in touch so people know to ask me what I wanted to do next? Did I see a lot of people getting in contact with me? to ask me how I made the film because they wanted to make something similar? Did I get a lot of people get in contact with me because they were like, oh, I'd quite like to make a film about North Korean defectors. Could you just pass on Jungwa's email? I got loads of those messages. And then the other one that has really, I feel like, added though to the experience I've had over the last year that I got was I got a lot of messages from other either female or very often uh, non-white filmmakers getting in contact with me to say, which did make me feel really good, which was that they were like, we've seen your film and I'm not only like a, a fan of the film, but I'm also really, they were like, oh, I can really identify with you as a filmmaker that doesn't seem to have come through the established track of, again, like, I don't know, like recognized schemes or the, I don't know how to put it, mentored by the right kind of people in the industry in that way. And I've had mentors and like we were saying, as in I really do think as a, as, as a young person, I'm totally indebted to the people that supported me. There were some senior women at Vice who really went out of their way to support me, teach me the ropes. And simultaneously, also when I left, I, I'm just, as I put it, I'm thankful to everyone as a freelancer who ever gave me a job ever. But, you know, um, but yeah, again, I, it just, the number of people getting in contact with me then suddenly I felt where people were like, tell us how, you, tell me how you did it. T tell me how you did it. Please give me any and all advice made me realize how when I kind of felt like I'd stumbled through it and I definitely didn't feel like I had all the answers, um, I was being asked for answers, felt almost this burden. And we were talking about this earlier about how when people were like, how did you do it? I felt like almost bad telling them the truth, not because I didn't want to be truthful, but because the truth kind of was like, well, I had to stay up for months on end until 2 a.m. and then get up at 8 a.m., to, to make the film I had to work two three different jobs at the same time and not really see my family or my friends for, for a year or so to make and you decide if it was worth it you know what I mean is in it's that horrible thing where you were putting your life decisions on show for someone else and you go well that was it that those are the decisions I had to make for this short you might now in hindsight now I've told you the truth be like that was foolish but at the same time I was like oh I felt I felt so bad not being able to give other people a nicer picture. But then at the same time, that's what has really encouraged me then to kind of uh, advocate and speak openly about it to also encourage other people to say, well, what else could we be doing to support people? What else? You, you, you know what I mean? And it's not just you that's had to work that hard. It's just that often the easy answer or the pretty answer is, is given in response to those questions. I'm also interested in the fact that, as you say yourself, you kind of didn't come through the normal schemes. You're a bit of an outsider to the industry and it's it's quite new to you. When you're getting deluged by these offers, you know, pitch me this and 
go for coffee and maybe we'll represent you, etc. How are you separating the wheat from the chaff? How do you know what's worthwhile your time and might lead somewhere? How do you know people, are, whether people are just exploiting you or... <laughs> Yeah, as a freelancer and a filmmaker and when the attention was coming to you after little Pyongyang, mm. I, I would imagine put myself in that situation, you'd, you'd want to say yes to everything because it was all very exciting and you kind of wanted to gobble up all these opportunities coming your way, but not all of them are going to be worthwhile. And how are you teaching yourself how to, how to slow down, how to say no? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess... Based on instincts alone, it was pretty easy to deduce that if um, we talk about what was my ideal offer after making the first film, was the opportunity to get to make a second film that wouldn't require me to make the same devastating sacrifices that I had had to make the first one. And that's also what I feel you are told by the industry to expect. So that's why, in the first instance, that's the that's that was my guiding you know that filter okay, what am I going to be offered to, to be able to do what I want to do? And so I'd say in the first instance, that's what I mean, is in when that didn't come, and I again, I really say this from a point of, I was, didn't feel entitled to it, and I, I didn't expect it, and I didn't think, oh, that's what I, I'm due. But I'm more just saying, quite honestly, that that's what I feel when we look at the main film institutions in this country that encourage young people to even make shorts. That's what they tell you to expect. So that didn't happen. So then instead, like you said, when I started to look at what offers were coming to me, in the first instance, the offers coming to me were to aid other people, to assist them to either make stuff that was similar, or quite frankly, they were just, and they were just things that weren't really paying. That was what was happening. So like in the, in terms of how I then approached those and how I, again, like made decisions, I'd say, well, first, I'd just been through a period of, not being, uh, you, you don't get paid to release your own film, uh, especially not on the budgets that we were talking about. So I, uh, so, you know, like anyone who um, needs money to pay rent, you, you take the jobs that you're like, okay, I'm going to take something in some way, I'll get something out of it, it'll be some experience, but you just want to make some money. But as I said, when you go through that first hurdle, first experience, again, with everything that was coming at me and, and, the, and really trying to be reflective and ask, go back to when I found myself sitting in an audience member in in these scenarios and hearing people say when they were giving advice to filmmakers because I still that's what I said saw myself as someone who was still kind of back where I started because I you know I was like okay cool so I did do this film but I must not be doing it right if everyone sitting on stage is telling me well then you're going to get all the offers coming in is that I, I told you I went back to square one and I was like okay you know what what's going on what should I be doing and in the first instance I'd say like when I, I felt I began to ask more questions of people is I felt like that's it it splits into twofold in terms of at least I would say and people can correct me in terms of what I think indie filmmakers are encouraged to do which is again to keep making low budget shorts as proof of your style aesthetic but also worth and proven worth in terms of being able to command a crowd and an audience and success and but then that's it I found myself being like okay cool if I am back at square one then what I've learned from the first time around is not only I have to go through run at the mill of like financing but also that first film as I kind of told everyone right with the a budget disparity is that I was like so how did I make that first film I had to ask a lot of people for favors and for me as someone who does not feel again entitled to other people's time and it's I feel it was I was very grateful that there were so many people the first time around that were willing to either give their time heavily discounted or you know you get a kit house throwing some kit your way as a freebie 
I just, I don't know. I just felt like, how can I do that second, how can I do that second time round? And so that's why in terms of the decision of the jobs I then had to begin to take, I tell people I had to begin to be very ruthless with myself to not take any jobs or offers where actually I wasn't getting to do what I wanted to do, but I also wasn't getting paid any money that could then cover my time to work in projects that I wanted to. And the only thing that I'd say that, you know, for me as a filmmaker that I think needs to be discussed that we probably won't solve in this talk, but is the fact that like, I feel increasingly I'm seeing that the jobs that, as I put it, quote unquote, are meant to pay, that aren't necessarily for a filmmaker meant to be uh, vocational, that the, as, as they're in any industry, you do some stuff just to, to be a bit more procedural, makes money, are increasingly appropriating the low budget indie film model and the expectations of low-budget indie film, but when they are commercial uh, companies. And by that being more specific, what I mean is, when I was, when again, I feel like I'm not the first filmmaker to say, how do you make your money to do your own stuff? Oh, you just go work for other people and other companies. But what I found over the last year, very interestingly, compared to even when I made Little Pyongyang, even when I, what I was doing there was, again, I'd be, I told you, working several jobs during the day to then fund both my time and the project itself in the evenings or weekends, was that now, a year on, rather than that becoming easier, there are more and more companies, I think, that have seen how successful and motivated a lot of young people are, how when they are working more on for themselves or as friends, on a, as I would put it, collective basis, to make those proofs of concept, that they've just kind of now said, oh, well, I've seen now that you can make a film that really the commercial industry should really be paying, I told you, 50, 100K for, but I've seen you can do that for, for five. So now I'm just going to charge you five. And that's something that I think I've come across. I don't have the solution, but it's just something, again, that I feel I've learned in the last year and I've really come across in terms of that hurdle towards moving forward. And how do you ask for more money? You just ask. I feel that maybe, again, a few years ago, there were conversations about the idea that, especially as a woman, that women weren't asking enough for what they were due but I would say very luckily I've been always blessed as my mother would say with a big mouth that I'd always ask for what I wanted to say what I wanted I think if you do ask you might you probably won't get exactly what you want but that's where I then put it on like I just really want there to be more conversations played out in terms of how people expect people to move to that next stage what those feasible next stages are uh, quote-unquote emerging filmmakers uh, that do take into account not just make the shorts if they're successful but also take into account pay and what people think as an industry standard is a feasible next step is the next step for me if I make another short to then be directing a tv series is it a feature oh no should I not you know what I mean isn't it's even been confusing to to decipher what people think the next step should be while your own goals what is your own goal as a filmmaker, as a director, yeah, as I put it, just like I simply put, for me, it's the dream and the simple one-word answer is to be able to make the stories you want to make in the ways you want to make them in whatever format you think is correct. Because again, that's one of the benefits that we have now of like you can make shorts, they have an audience, you can make TV series. But, um, but yeah, I, I guess like the simple answer to that is that I would just like to be able to have those opportunities afforded to me on the same basis and, and, and for everyone else to be afforded on an equal basis. In terms of like specific projects that I've got going on now, um, I, I, so in the end, I have got the funding and I have been slogging away at making another short. And it is a short documentary. And I was very lucky in that, 
again, in terms of being open about how it was, how the idea came to me, it's like, oh, as with anyone, inspiration comes to you in many different ways. But in terms of the funding specifically, because I know that's a big thing that people always ask, is um, I was very lucky that one of the funders from Little Pyongyang, in the end, when I did pitch them a film, said, okay, let's do it. And this time we'll, again, again, tell us how much you want. But maybe again, as I put it, I had to adjust my expectations to what I think was reasonable to that they could afford. I was reading an interview in The Guardian recently with Lulu Wang, who is an Asian American director whose film The Farewell is currently out in UK cinemas. You should go and see it if you haven't already. But she was talking about the difficult route to getting that film financed and how she would speak to a lot of investors and they would say, have you thought about introducing a white character to the narrative? It's about an American, a young American woman who goes back to China when she finds out her grandma is uh, sick and dying and also being told that it was a foreign language movie. And she was like, but I'm American. It's an American story. I know you're British, you're of Iranian, Chinese and Malaysian descent. And I wonder, do you often have to fight harder to justify your perspective and your story? I think what I'd first say in relation to that question yeah, again, I'd like tackle it in a few different parts. I'd say, again, in terms of a year on from Little Pyongyang, I had an interview a few months ago, again, I had some distance from the film, and it was actually before I too had read that Lulu Wang interview or seen The Farewell, The Farewell had again started to come out, was that someone again said to me, as a director, forget again all the producer talk, just as a director, what do you think, what were you not expecting from the release? And I said, the one thing I didn't expect to be asked so much about was about my uh, race and ethnicity in relation to making a film about a North Korean refugee. And I said that because I was like, I'm really surprised. And as I learn more about the industry and I learn also more, as I said, about the opportunities and what the industry tells me that they're looking for in London, in the UK, which is that they are looking for British filmmakers telling British stories from British perspectives is that I was really, it just struck me that I was like, I don't think there's anyone that would describe Little Pyongyang as a British film. And if there is someone that would, I, I'm like, y y would you? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, because, yeah, I just suddenly realized there was like, no one when they're talking to me is talking about it in that way. Instead, everyone and the angle they want to get out of me is like, it's almost like that's it. They want, it's not that I'm in denial, obviously, about, um, shared cultural values or that and I can get onto that in a second but the big thing for me and the big question that I've begun to want to ask other people and get them to reflect on is that if you agree with me which is that actually you've watched the film you did like the film but being honest with yourself you would not the first thing that a description that would have come to your mind would not to be to lord it as a British film say why because I am a British filmmaker I have grown up in London English is my first language the crew working on that film most of whom live in, they all lived in London, most of whom are British. The, f the film takes place in the, entirely in the UK. All the people you see in the film have British passports. In fact, as the film discusses, three of all the kids' first language are English. They're going to grow up as British kids. The film itself was talking about moving to London, moving to the UK, and experiencing what it was like to experience Britain. And yet, I, if, if I then begin for people rhetorically to explore why I think people wouldn't call it a British film, okay, A, we can say because the first language of the film is Korean. Well, I'd say that's strange because when I look at myself as a young British person and I look at the UK, I've always got people telling me that they really like the fact that there are loads of people in the UK who might whose first language might not be English and we're told to celebrate the fact that we have this diverse community. 
if I again look at the film and I say, oh, maybe it's because there's a man who isn't white leading it. Well, again, I'm told, especially as someone who cannot, as I said, I can't control what I look like and where I come from, but I see myself wholly, this, this is my experience, where I've grown up as British. I'm told, no, that's a cool, it's cool, it's, it's something that we value. I just ask people that, and that's, I just ask people, as I said, it's not to call anyone out, it's not to, to make people feel bad. It's a journey I had to go on myself, just reflecting. And I think for me, when you ask me about the hurdles I am up against in terms of, if I go back to like, what are my goals? And my goals are just, I want to tell stories that I find interesting, relate to me, that I think are going to make people's lives better by putting it out there. I think I'd say like, that's the answer. That, right, like if people are telling you in positions of power, and also I told you expectation, that what they expect from people coming out of Britain is British films, and yet the films I want to make that I think are unequivocally British, people don't see as British films, that is just the simplest way I can put it to people in terms of what I think is one of the greatest hurdles that I come across. And it's just, as I said, still something that I think, again, people are increasingly beginning to to talk about but the reason again I go back to actually then the the reason I was hesitating when I was I was trying to really unpack the question and the other word I would pick up on not again as a criticism but as just something I think to unpack is when often that's it people have used that word when talking to me they've said perspective you have a insert here loads of different countries because your parents are from all you know different sorts of you have that perspective and I start to think what is that because when I go around I do, and I'm so proud of where my parents come from, my cultural heritage, you know, all the things that make me me. But I say when you translate that into not just everyday life, but a filmmaking context, I say, in the, in, you know, as, as an individual, I'd say, well, I'm me, and I'm, I'm a culmination of so many different things. It, you'd be very hard-pressed, I think, to find another Iranian, Malaysian, Chinese filmmaker living in London <laughs> to say, but I do think if you found another one, they probably wouldn't have made the same film at all. And again, why is that? It's like, because you're the, the, you're the sum of so many different parts. And I'd say, in particular, that's why using the film perspective, uh, using the word perspective when asking directors to unpack that in relation to their film, I think this is maybe what Lulu Wang was talking about when she was like trying to change the language with which people were approaching her in press and wanting to say, no, see, this is an American film with the farewell is because actually what you really want people to ask you is more about your approach and how you as an individual turn your life's experiences into a directorial approach because that's what all directors have to do. They have to have an approach and they have to translate their experiences. And so um, if I say to people, well, let me tell you a bit more about the approach with which I um, approach the film. I've always told people about like the struggles with financing, my motivations. But I often say, and, and the best way I would put it, I think the most pointed place where I get asked uh, about I'd say like race in relation to the film is where people would always go to me oh well you guys uh, in that interview seemed pretty close and I'd be like yeah it was really great yeah we had a really great relationship and I credit that and the trust between us and the understanding between us the, to the credit of the film but I've had people before go yeah but that's probably because you know you're and I'm like yeah what and then can't even say it yeah and they're like you know you're and I'm like yeah what and I've had someone go oh, and I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm not Korean. And they'll be like, ah, uh, Asian? And I'm like, well, yeah, if you drew like a big ring around the world, actually, I am Asian, Iran and China, Malaysia, they're all in there. But, you know, if you think about it, that's what it's like to say that because my parents were from, and let's bear in mind as well, like Iran's probably like if we drew distances out closer to Europe technically than North Korea. But you know what I mean? If you were to say, okay, let's take, like, like you know what I mean? Like, let's play this out. 
that I was able to be closer to this man and it manifests as a better film because my parents came from countries where they didn't speak Korean either, where they didn't, do you know you, 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 I mean? I was like, let's just play that out. However, I'm not playing dumb to the fact that I think there are obviously cultural similarities. But then again, I'm like, cool, we're saying that. Let's literally play that out. What are you saying to me? Are you saying that because maybe in my culture and how I've been brought up, I respect people beyond language barriers better that I was able to to uh, build a better relationship with him? Are you telling me because where I came from means that I treat people who look a certain way, i.e. maybe slightly closer to my skin tone or face on the spectrum than yours, that I treated him with more respect? Is, is that what you're saying? Is that, are you saying to me then that you don't respect him and say, okay, cool, thanks. But you, but all I mean is like, again, I, I don't say this to be pointed. I say it because I go back to when you ask me personally what I think it is, rather than playing out those assumptions or labels, is I go, I feel like what I try to do with this film, whether that has to do with where I come from or whether I was more likely to do this because of my upbringing, comes from the fact that I just really wanted to make a film where what I could give to this man and this film was time and respect. So I said, if you ask me to break down as a director, the director's approach to building a good relationship with your contributor, I said, this, okay, so we were making a film, right, about trauma. One of the things I just asked him straight away was, how would you like to be interviewed? Okay, I'm coming at it maybe at the perspective that I'm going to come and ask you these, these questions. And straight away, his reply was, the thing you need to understand if you've not... Uh, had to endure a dictatorship, which I have not been lucky to be brought up here, is that just being asked the simplest question about North Korea can trigger again for me all the emotion and intensity of seeing your family being put through the worst atrocities that a human can. So the minute he said that to me, I was like, okay, let's translate that into a respectful approach. I was like, we shouldn't do the interview in one um, big bulk. We should break it up. So even though when you watch the film, it might look like everything is one big interview, what you'll see there is a lot of voiceover that was added over time and layered in in order to give him the space to reflect and also to heal. Because I was asking him to do something, which was to relive trauma. And I recognize that as a director. So I built that into my approach. I built that into my finance plan. And I built that just into the way also that I communicated with the rest of my crew how we should make the film. And was that coming from a journalist kind of perspective of you'd worked in journalism, you knew how to interview? If anything, I'd say to you that it came from as a journalist being asked to do quite the opposite one too many times and feeling very disappointed. As a journalist, again, when uh, unfortunately what you're up against is, again, time, money, time, money. And you're told all the time that, that time and money are good enough excuses to level to a real human being whose story you were saying that you want to tell. You're told, oh, just tell them that they, we've really got to do it on this day. You've got to uh, just, I know that they might be working that day, but tell them to take the day off because, you know, you just really want to tell their story. But um, I, I say Channel 4 as an example. I'm not saying that this is something Channel 4 asked me to do. But, you know, someone's saying to you, Channel 4 need this by Monday. I don't mind. I don't care if he's working Friday. You've got to just get it from him. Explain, he'll understand. He'll understand. You know, we're, we're, we're pressed for time. We're pressed for money. Too often I was put in that position, quite frankly, that that's why when I finally got the opportunity to make something myself, where already we had thrown money out the window, and already I was like, there is no deadline for me on this, I've got all the time in the world, I then suddenly was like, no, I want to show this person the respect that where I'm not using those things, my excuses to control the way that they want 
to share their story because that's why I'm here after all. And that's not to, again, as I said, choo-choo an entire industry. Obviously, as a journalist, that's it. For me, it was really a place working in an intense environment and doing this over and over because whilst Little Pyongyang was the first film I was making independently, it was by no means the first film I had made, the first, again, real human with whom I had gone through the process of translating their life into a film or an article, you do, you were taught a way to do things, you are given advice by mentors, but you also really work out your own compass with where you think the line is. And so, yeah, I'd say, like, I credit the experience I'd had before that, which was four years, I think, working professionally before taking on Little Pyongyang at, like, helping me figure out where stuff lay for me. Um, I think that's a really beautiful approach to sit down with someone and say, how would you like this to go? So off the back of that, I'm interested to know, moving forward as a filmmaker, how would you like to be supported? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's an amazing question. And I think it really speaks to how you don't get asked that. And so, yeah, so I'd say if you ask me right now, in terms of the projects I have coming up, and the things I've got right now. Oh, actually, again, maybe it might be useful to play it out with specific examples for people. I have in development, what I'm looking to get funded are some scripted projects because I'd like to move my experience more into that area. But also a documentary film, which I'm about to finish editing and will need to be brought out into the world. And I tell people, as someone who has already had to fight the battle of making a film for less than it should cost, asking professionals to work for less than they should be paid, distribution is a whole and getting getting the film to your audience is a whole other slog so i would really love to say to people like i would love more support in getting my films out to an audience when i don't have the money and i don't want to continue to um expect other people to help me out essentially by because they're also if they're also trying to pay their rent that is something that i think i'd love to discuss love to find ways in which we can bridge that gap and then simultaneously um Again, I think people might find interesting for me is, as I said, I'm now getting on to maybe in total seven years in industry um, and, and being full-time employed, working in production roles, working every day since graduating uni, um, but not film school. I think often a lot of the opportunities I'm seeing to get independent funding, at least in this country, will require you to show past uh, work and um, and also people often expect you to you know in order to give you the opportunity to do something they expect you to have done exactly that same thing before so again even in terms of documentaries if I say oh if it's a, even if it's another documentary let alone a scripted project I think people say and are you going to do it again are you going to do the set are you going to do the master interview in the same way and whenever you say no I'd like to do it this other way and people will suddenly say but you haven't done it this other way I don't want to risk my money on you then I'd say the support that I think it would be really good to give filmmakers is the joke is, I did that first film with having not done that exact thing before, and I like to feel that it wasn't a complete disaster, and I, I didn't mess around with people's money. I, I gave them what I said they would, I would. So I would love that if there were people who felt that they wanted to support an idea, but someone hadn't made the exact thing before, to step in with like uh, what people call in-kind, and I guess that's like non-financial ways to support them getting there. So if so, if I suddenly say uh, one of the films I'm trying to make, which is a scripted film, is a one-shot film, which requires um, just a different technique. And if people say, well, I've never, you don't have any evidence of having done that before. Well, I would love if maybe someone would just step in and maybe gave me a day of their time or, uh, you know, just someone to say, because it's not rocket science, just to talk me through my idea and give me that time if they can't give money to say, okay, well, here's what you need to be thinking about to get there. I um, would love to have conversations in light of everything that we're discussing with 
I would put it the other side of the coin, which are funders, gatekeepers, facilitators, because I think the conversation has to be had in tandem. Um, because it also, I don't want to be so, because, um, you know, again, because they're going through their own stuff and they have their own things to mind that I don't want to put it on someone without having that two-way conversation either. What is a film by a woman filmmaker that you think is an undervalued gem that more people should have seen? Oh, I mean, all of them ever. But, you know, well, all of them ever, just quite frankly, you, we, we just mentioned, we were just talking about, it would seem silly for me to say that Andrea Arnold, a woman who is one of the few women who has countless times won can and some of the best film festivals in the world, should be getting more praise. And yet I feel she should. How is that woman not a household name? How has everyone not seen every Andrea Arnold film in the UK? Do, do you know what I mean? And so I, on the one hand, I'd be like, go out and watch every film by a female filmmaker you can. But in terms of actually answering a question and picking one, I'd say a documentary that I saw recently or in the last year that I thought was brilliant because of the way it amazingly unpacked the beauty of being a female filmmaker, but also with the struggles, was um, Sandy Tan's uh, Shirkers. It's on Netflix, so it's easy to access if you do subscribe to that platform. And uh, yeah, I just say it was like an amazing documentary, not just because of its craft in the way that it's beautifully designed, beautifully told, the way the story unravels just shows like an amazing control of storytelling and pace. But actually just in the film's content, I had never seen, let alone in a documentary in recent times, something that really spoke to me about the struggle. Like, you know, you often think it's um, it's a bit uh, navel-gazy, I think, for like a filmmaker to make a film about filmmaking, but she actually does so in a way that I think speaks to a shade of just being a woman in the world in an amazing way. But it earns that perspective, I think, because obviously so it's about a young woman who makes a film and it's stolen by kind of a male counterpart, mentor kind of type figure. Um, and it's about the reclaiming of that narrative. It's kind of patching together the footage and the story that she, she lost 20, 20 years ago. Um, so navel gazy, yes, but she's had that story literally taken from her. And this is her first opportunity to tell it in the way that she wanted to. Yeah, exactly. And to talk about what that experience meant. And um, finally, uh, you mentioned that you were on the Sheffield Doc Fest Future Producers Scheme and you were introduced to some mentors there. Is there a woman that has particularly inspired you or whose work you'd like to spotlight? I think to pick, I don't say this to avoid the question, but that's it. I almost feel guilty picking one to the detriment of the others. And so maybe, like you said, I'll send you a whole list of every amazing woman that I've ever worked with and we'll stick them in the notes of this podcast so people can go and check them out because I do think that's just the fairest way almost. Because, yeah, that's it. I'd say, like, on every, almost every project that I've had, that you definitely learned something, but just there have been so many, so many different women. From, like, from like my very first job where I tell people I was an intern and then a researcher at a TV production company doing documentaries, from the two women who were who now it feels funny to me because I would have been 21 they were what 24 at the time now that feels ridiculously young but that's it who made so much time to as an intern tell like you know isn't and we know how people treat interns maybe I you know isn't would I be here today if Emerald and Sasha and Kate or uh, Natasha all these amazing women that I got to work with in that office didn't care about the intern I don't know then I go to my next job after that I went to I went to Vice and I say would I have had the same experience if the first uh, line manager I had, Lena, her name was Lena Presswood, and then I had um, Sally Freeman, both two women who spoke to me like I was 
a legitimate individual, was never dismissive, asked my opinion on things, and also really took it on them for someone who was just working an entry-level job to challenge me. One of the um, things that I think that people asked me about in particular was working on Gaycation, which was this uh, TV show that uh, was produced by Vice that I worked on that was fronted by Ellen Page and Ian Daniel. Um, but again, on that program, I not only in just in terms of like uh, the experiences and, and obviously everything that I learned and just when I think about that program, I think obviously about the content and the literal roles and, and work I was doing. But when I, th- I really think about the camaraderie that I had with people on that team that really invested in me and that's why I mean it just took me seriously and the work I was doing seriously that's not to say I was the exec or that's not to say I was pivotal but what I mean is again it's that whole thing when I come back to like respect respect and how you're you're interacting with people and there again I just had two amazing just several amazing women that's what I said to, to name everyone that's what I said it, it would take too long but but to name them anyway I'd say Niharika and Charlotte were amazing and then are you conscientious of that moving forward as a filmmaker who's obviously in charge of a set yourself to, to pay attention to everyone that's on that set? Um, yes. Yes, absolutely. I say that like, I mean, again, and, and that's actually why I would say very readily, um, yes, I do think that the greatest measure of a filmmaker can be if you're okay for anyone to go ask people that have worked with you what they think about you. So yes, sometimes, again, like, let's say going back to Andrea Arnold and going back, I think in particular to female filmmakers we know, who get reputations for being difficult and for as I put it it's two two sides of a coin you do you know who's as I said I'm sure there are so many people that would call me difficult stressful other people would say no I just saw people I saw Roxy trying to show respect to her contributor and so that's why she was being difficult but actually was she when all she was asking for was more time to allow someone to heal from the trauma of their experiences and and being re-triggered so that's what I mean in terms of like I often say if you hear anyone describing a female filmmaker as difficult you immediately just put that in the trash I, or at least I do and then you join me in and as I go okay next let, let me see what else people have said about them but I'd say yeah 100% like I really don't take for granted that it's a team effort making a film and not only as I said is the industry built through like paying it forward it's a team like you can't make a f- I, y- yes technically you can if you want to be the editor and the cinematographer you want to do everything yourself but I think to make I think you benefit and it was intended to be a group effort. And part of that, as I keep saying, is about like respect for individuals, those on screen, those behind the scenes, and really understanding what it is that everyone's contributing and really valuing that in people's time. Amen to that. Roxy Rizavani, thank you so much for coming on the first live edition of Best Girl Grip. Thank you to my audience. You've been wonderful. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. downloading this bonus episode of best girl grip you can find out more about roxy's portfolio and also watch the brilliant little pyongyang if you haven't already at www.roxyrosvani.co.uk i will be back next week to launch season two of the podcast with a very special guest so stay tuned for that if you're new to the podcast the entirety of season one can be listened to on itunes spotify and acast have a great week <laughs>